Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching Clubland, we speak to Julie Hornweg. When it comes to coaching netball, there's not much that Julie Hornwig hasn't achieved. Internationally acclaimed, Julie has coached England, Fiji and Wales, but is equally well known for her exploits with the Melbourne Phoenix and the Melbourne Vixens. Having coached the Melbourne Phoenix to the championship in 2005, Julie was appointed the inaugural coach of the newly formed Melbourne Vixens in the ANZ Championship, with a title to follow in their second year in 2009. Unfortunately, our Zoom connection wasn't amazing for this conversation, but in the era of doing everything remotely, I'm sure you won't be too fussed. In our chat with Julie, we talk about the priorities when coaching a brand new team or franchise, the essential attributes to being a successful coach, and how the game of netball has evolved over the years. This episode is proudly brought to you by Ferox Cricket, an ICC-endorsed and preferred brand of both international players and cricketers in clubland alike. Ferox Cricket supplies elite quality cricket gear at affordable prices. Contact Kane and the Ferox team on Facebook or Instagram. Alrighty, let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Julie Hornweg. Thank you, Mitch. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you on, Julie. I have to be really honest. My netball playing credentials are limited, and that's probably being generous. I've played one game of mixed netball, and I'm at an absolute fall of myself. And as a netballer, I make a good cricketer. So in terms of the nuances of, of the game, I'll be looking for you to fill in some blanks for me. But I think the conversation we'll have tonight around coaching, uh, a lot of the concepts will be transferable to no matter what coaching job you're doing, what sport you're coaching. So I'm looking forward to the, the conversation with you. A lot is known about Julie Hornwig, the coach. However, I'm keen to know more about your playing career. Can you can you tell us about Julie Hornwig, the player? Well, I started netball when I was 11, almost 12. I first went to my local netball association for a game of netball, but uh, there was only one spot available and there were two players. And one, well, she seemed like a six foot at the time, but she wasn't. I was, I'm very short. So I'm vertically challenged. So <laughs> she was taller than I, so she was given the position. So I had to wait another 12 months. So um, started playing out in Clayton, out in the suburbs, uh, in the Springvale Netball Association. Played there for a number of years. Was playing senior netball at a quite a young age. And my father wondered if there was another level of netball that I could go to other than, than uh, association level. So he did a bit of searching and found uh, a competition at Royal Park. And he used to drive me out there every Saturday to play in the competition out there, and that was a lead into the state team. So from there I made the under, I think it was about the under-18s then, they've changed years now, under-18s, under-21s, open, sort of step up, step up, step up. Got to the senior level, and it was very difficult to get much court time because the two Australian center quarters were both Victorian. So it seemed to be sort of a stopping point for me. So I thought, well, why not give coaching a go? So moved across to coaching and didn't miss a beat from there on. No, you've made a pretty good fist of coaching, it's fair to say. So moving on from your playing <laughs> career, you were the Australian coaching director and had a long-standing involvement at the VIS uh, before eventually going to England to coach them in the year 2000. Can you talk us uh, through your experience in England and 
in terms of the participation rate with netball over there, um, the professionalism, and how that might compare to the Australian game? Um, again, the move to England was because there was not many opportunities to coach international netball in Australia. Again, the top was quite uh, bottlenecked, and so I thought, well, if I want to do international coaching, I have to look sideways. I've always challenged myself to to look at things differently. So um, my motto being dare to be the best. So I applied for the England coach. No, actually, they contacted me and said, would I be interested? So I flew over to England with my husband and did an interview and was given the job. So I packed up my two children and my husband and we moved to England. A very different situation over there for me because I'd been coaching, seeing athletes quite regularly. In England, you only saw your athletes when I first arrived, every bi-monthly maybe, because I was spread out around England, and I found that quite difficult. So I set up four home training centres around England and used to travel. One I ran permanently, and the other two I'd go every second week to. So yep. I was in the car a lot, <laughs> travelling <laughs> around. But I thought it was important if you're coaching athletes, you need to see them yep. and you need to have hands-on experience with them, particularly when you're a new coach. England were moving into a very professional realm at that point of time. They hadn't in the past, but were starting to move in and had employed part-time staff in terms of sports nutrition, psychology, strength and conditioning, a whole gamut of coaching. So when we did have a camp, I had 16 to 18 athletes and I think I had 16 support staff. Wow. Wow. (laughs) We made it very difficult. They'd come off court and I'd want to talk to them about something that happened on court and I would say to them, oh, look, um, let's have a meeting after lunch. Oh, sorry, I'm a nutritionist. Well, let's have a meeting. Oh, sorry, I'll be at sports psychologist. <laughs> so it was very hard to find time to talk to them. But yes, they were just starting to, to get their professional yeah. uh, network and framework in, in place. So I really enjoyed coaching the athletes there. It was quite good. But in comparison, because I'd come from being in Fiji for three years before that, and the Fijian athletes almost lived in my house. They were in and out. One did live with us because she was positioned on the other side of the island and didn't have the money to catch a bus to training, so yeah. she actually did live with us. Whereas in England, my family were very separated from my professional life. They didn't see the athletes very often. Uh, they weren't involved in their training, whereas in Fiji, they'd been very much part of the team. So they found that a little, found that a bit difficult, but still enjoyed it. At the end, uh, towards the end of my contract, uh, 9-11 had happened, okay. which made you feel like a long way from home. Yeah. And my children were just sort of broaching secondary school and felt that we'd moved them around a lot <laughs> up yeah. to that stage. So we felt they really needed to be more secure in their education. So we came home. And you touched on your time in Fiji as well. And also you had the opportunity to coach Wales a little bit later on. Both countries speak really fondly of your involvement with them, with Fiji even awarding you an Officer of the Order of Fiji for your services to netball. And you've already touched on sort of your, your, some of your time in Fiji, mind you, but how do you reflect on your experience with these two countries and the legacy and the impact that you've had on netball in both Fiji and Wales? I think when you move into a new country, and you take, on, you take your values and your beliefs and your standards, and it's important that you have those and it's important that you convey what they are. But I think you also have to listen to your athletes. And you have to find out what's important to them. So in Fiji, religion is very important to the athletes. So there were prayer meetings in the morning after they woke up. There were prayer meetings at the night before they went to bed. And I'm not one that goes to church. So I found that a little difficult at first. But 
And I never, ever went to a morning session because I am terrible at getting out of bed and getting... <laughs> but I used to go to the night ones and listen to the prayers and we moved out into the community and got to know them and my children learnt to sing Fijian songs and dance Fijian. So I think you have to embrace their in, their culture as much as you impose on yours. And the same in Wales. When I moved to Wales, you have to find out what your athletes about their culture and what's important to them, move around, see the sites, see what... It makes the, the country tick and they're, they're sort of beating hard and Welsh are very passionate about their sports. You go to the rugby and they just, the singing and, and all yeah. the kids get dressed up and uh, it's just a fabulous thing. So I think part of it is embracing their culture. And I think if you, if you show the athletes that you're willing to really integrate into the culture and embrace that culture, they're more inclined to meet you halfway and, and want to uh, instill some of the things that you're trying to, to put across to, to their team as well. So I think making that connection early on can be really rewarding. And then eventually you come back home and there was a restructure of Trans-Tasman Netball. So the Melbourne Phoenix and Melbourne Kestrels morphed into the Melbourne Vixens and you were the inaugural coach of the Vixens. Can you tell us about some of the priorities that you had um, starting up a a franchise or a club where it's brand new and you're trying to blend and and, uh, merge personalities, game styles, et cetera? What were some of the things that you had to tick off immediately once you got that group together? We brought in a um, – we obviously had the support of the Victorian Nipple Association, so they did the, the package around the name and the uniform and the colours, although they did embrace the athletes' opinions and my opinion, so that was great. Yeah. But we brought in um, a selector from another state to just have a look at our groups because I didn't want to be seen to be – because I had been coaching the Phoenix for yeah. three years before that, so didn't want to seem to be favouring them, so – then we had to, to then interview all the support staff, your physio, your manager. So, again, we brought in an outside personnel to help with the selection of that. And it turns out that we got a fairly good mix of Kestrels and Phoenix, although probably a little in player-wise towards the Phoenix side, but uh, they had been the most successful up to that point in time. But it just gave you an opportunity to start with a clean slate. What were our goals? What were our priorities? What were our expectations? What were we going to, what was this new uniform and this new team going to stand for in terms of their values and their behaviour? So we started all of that. But I'm a great believer, no matter which team you, you coach, did it in Fiji, certainly in Wales, you have to start with what your expectations are and what you hope to get out of it. And then once the players understand you and your expectation and setting standards, then they need to work how that looks for them. And so involving them in all of those values and behaviours, particularly behaviours. I've seen a lot of teams talk about their goals, talk about what their vision might be, but don't actually write down the behaviours that will lead you to that. And mm. actual nitty-gritty, like I am going to turn up at training on yeah. time. I am going to be just really simple things, but actions that the players need to perform to make sure that they're going to achieve that outcome because it's all very nice writing a vision down or a goal. Yes, we want to win the championship. That's very airy-fairy, but getting those behaviours written down is so important. And then reviewing them regularly and making sure that everybody is accountable to those standards. We see a lot of change rooms of elite sporting teams and they've got all these posters around the wall, billboards around values and you know, <laughs> mottos. And I think you're, you're exactly right. What, is, what are the practicalities? What does it look like on the ground? What does it look like on the training track, on the court? Uh, that's what, where it actually really counts. Was it hard letting go of the, the Phoenix? I mean, you've been such an instrumental part in their success and then all of a sudden things get turned upside down. Was that 
Was that hard letting go? Very hard. Yeah. <laughs> very hard indeed. And the players found it very difficult because they felt they'd been so successful. And the teams from interstate, Thunderbirds kept their name from their comp- from the Commonwealth Bank Trophy. Swifts kept their names. Firebirds kept theirs. Yeah. But we had two teams and we needed to bring them together. So, yeah, they felt that some others were allowed to keep their identity, but we started from nothing. And some of them at first couldn't see where that was going to lead to, but look at it now. Everyone loves the Vixens. Everybody thinks they're fantastic. They have an identity. They have a brand. And so Phoenix has been forgotten, unfortunately. Yeah, all's well that ends well, but it is a little bit sad, isn't it? And I guess you coached yeah. the, the Phoenix, the championship in 2005, and the Vixens to the championship in 2009. How do you compare and contrast these two title-winning teams and what made them tick? Well, some of the players were in both of those teams. You have Sherelle McMahon, Bianca Chadfield, Natasha Chocolate, Ingrid Dick, uh, Wendy Jacobson. They were from the Phoenix yeah. championship team. So there was some familiarity there. But looking back, that Phoenix team were the underdogs when they went into the, the championship match against the Swift. My memory fades me sometimes, but I think it was we won by 20 goals. We absolutely flipped that game. Yeah. Everything that we talked about for the whole year just came right on the day. Um, what makes that happen? I think as a coach, you have to be very calm and collected, uh, which is very hard because your stomach, stomach's going round and round in circles. <laughs> but I think if you walk around with purpose and calmness, the players can go into a match feeling calm. And I know that was particularly through the Thunderbirds match when we played as the Vixens because we had been known for our speed and people were expecting us to come out with a lot of speed and you know, move the ball around quickly. And I walked very slowly around the club rooms that day, very slowly around the change rooms, talked to the players about, let's start with control, let's bring the speed down a little bit, let's make the opposition think about something different and then bring on the speed. Yeah. But because I wanted them to be calm and collected, I had to walk around as if I was very mm. calm and collected. So in both of them, I think our preparation was pretty spot on. And you speak of preparation, you, you had uh, almost 20 years in, in the classroom as a teacher as well, and we know that preparation <laughs> and planning is just about a non-negotiable with, with teaching these days. Aside from those attributes that you, you've demonstrated so successfully, what are some of the other traits that you believe is essential to being a successful coach? Uh, obviously, knowledge of the game. Also, you have to have an understanding of how you're going to get the best out of an athlete. So there has to be a certain amount of sports psychology involved, although many teams have a sports psychologist around them. But I think you have to have an understanding of how you bring out the best. You certainly have to know what you want your athlete to look like physically. So some guidance towards your strength and conditioning coaches or the training that will bring out those attributes. So I think you have to touch on, you know, have to be a bit of a dietitian at times. What's that called? I think you have to have an, a grounding in all of those. While you don't always deliver the message, you can certainly have to guide your support staff on what you want your athlete to look like. Yeah, you definitely have to be a bit of a jack of all trades as a coach. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Coach education programs these days ground you in, in many of those areas, which is fantastic. Absolutely. And I guess netball's only relatively recently entered the professional era. Can you talk us about some of the challenges that you've had over the journey with athletes that might have been part-time, but having almost full-time athlete expectations being placed on them? 
A lot of people use the word professional, and professional is not necessarily getting the dollar. Professional is a state of mind. And mm-hmm. netball have always been light years ahead of many of the other sports. When periodisation was first talked about in sport, netball had been doing it for at least five or six years. When things came in about sports psychology, we'd already had a psychologist coming in and working with our team. Strength and conditioning, we'd always been doing, sending our players off to weight training. We, we didn't necessarily supervise them, but we encouraged them to go off and do weight training. And one year I worked with um, the weightlifting coach, the Victorian weightlifting coach, to try yeah. and get an edge. Um, so we'd always been doing those sorts of things, but the expectation that they be professional, and I think that's what set Phoenix and then Dixon's in the early days apart from the rest, about being professional about what you were doing. Yes, you weren't getting the dollars that others were getting, and you had to find a balance between your work and your life and you know, finding some downtime, but we always believed that you could deliver a very professional game and a professional athlete if you went about it, organised yourself and took into account all of these areas of your game. So, but these days, and that was always delivered in the early days, part-time. Some of the time I had to deliver some of those messages, but now you have all these professional people sitting around your team. So as a coach, uh, you've got to manage staff now, whereas once upon a time you were probably the, the point of contact for your athletes for most programs, whereas now there's a whole support network around you. So you now have not only the players and the athletes to coach and organise and communicate with, you have these whole support team around you that you now need to communicate with. So that sort of adds another layer of communication and that's another thing I've always been very mindful of layers of communication there are I've always imagined it like an onion at the heart of it of the athletes and their communication and then which as a coach and support staff we have absolutely no communication with your athletes on that level so Mm -hmm. that you know they socialize they have copies and then the next layer is the coach and the support staff and then you build out you build out parents and the family and then the supporters around you so I think it's very mindful that you understand at which point you have ability to interact and make changes and at what level you need to stay back. So in terms of coaching netball and the demands of netball coaches, how has this evolved over time? The pressures and demands that are placed from you know club boards, um, supporters' expectations, players' expectations of their coach in this day and age, how has that evolved over time for you? Uh, they've increased rapidly in time. Netball these days is a product. Once upon a time, I guess, without all of the other sports that uh, are now out there for young girls to play, um, netball was the number one sport, very much seen as a a product in itself. And so the expectations were always there to win and there was always pressure about winning. But these days, the young athletes, they have a brand to develop. They're always looking for what's my brand, where can I get sponsorship from, how can I generate myself as a product, not just the sport of netball. So these days there's, you know, this product development going on. So once upon a time when you sat on the sidelines, you sat on the sidelines because the coach said there's somebody else there doing the job better or we're looking for something else. But now it's why I'm on on the sidelines because it's affected my brand. If I don't get on the court, how do I develop a brand that says this is what I am as an athlete. So uh, there are a lot of pressures on athletes these days. It's not just getting on court and playing. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole realm of expectations for them beyond the court these days. 
And you touched on some of the pressures that the game might be getting these days with greater female participation in cricket. AFLW is obviously um, really on a roll at the moment. Soccer we see with, you know, Sam Kerr leading the charge. So is there a threat to netball as, I guess, the leading female participation sport in Australia? I would say there's probably a lot more opportunities for young athletes to play sport at a higher level. Once upon a time, it was just netball. Now there's these opportunities. And there may be one or two of some crossovers for some, but I think the population's big enough to cope with them. I think it's fantastic that females get to be elite athletes in all of these different sports and that our young girls coming through can aspire to play at all of these different sports. Once upon a time, there was only the one, one or two channels that we could send them through but now there's quite a number and if I don't succeed at one there's across there's quite a few netballers playing AFLW more the level below that the next level below hoping to get through but there are a number playing AFLW yeah so I think it's opportunity fantastic yeah absolutely and I always ask coaches about whether they mentor others or whether they receive mentoring and you're doing some mentoring with Shepherd and Netball. Do you want to talk us through what uh, what that entails? Oh, we come together with a group of 12 coaches that put their name forward to do this program. They come and do a workshop with me every two weeks. We sit down for two hours. I do a lot of talking in those two hours. <laughs> we talk about how to set up a centre pass in terms of attacking and defending and what do your defenders do when they're over a shot, how do you teach your goalers, to shoot with good techniques. So we talk about all of those sorts of things. We actually get out and court and try some of them too, yeah. which the coaches sometimes hobble home after they've <laughs> been put through the rigors. And then I go to their coaching sessions and just initially I just stood back and watched and then gave them some advice. Now we kind of co-coach. I get in there and do some, they do some. Sometimes they even ask me to take the whole session so they can see perhaps how they should be going about it. And then I go to games and watch their team play and give them some advice on how to manage. Well, I, I always call it the bench, but at uh, local netball, there's no such thing as a bench. They all just hover around in a circle. But yeah. how to organise them, make sure they're getting their message across, simplifying things. Some of them talk way too much. If they, your athletes, the players can't take that much information, shorten it down, keywords, short, sharp messages get across, um, how they might interchange their players how they interact with the umpires are at the sideline and just giving them some of my knowledge that's in my head back to coaches coming through the ranks. I am. Um, as part of my, my role at work, I coach a lot of other staff in the classroom and often you're, you're observing and you think, oh, I'd love to just be able to give that little tidbit of advice there and then <laughs> and, and, and team teach or co-teach. So I think that aspect of getting your hands dirty alongside that younger coach is a, is a great way of demonstrating and walking them through training sessions or drills or whatever it might be. And just in closing, Julie, what's your current take on the on the state of netball at the moment? Obviously, <laughs> in recent times, we've had the, the two points super shot rule introduced in the last five minutes of each quarter, which is very controversial. Has this made the game, the domestic game, a little bit too far removed from international netball? Got to remember, I've been around a long time, so I'm old school. Uh, <laughs> wasn't a huge fan of it, but these days it's a it's a uh, an entertainment package. You've got to keep the dollars rolling in. If you want professional sport, you need to be generating an income. So it's about an entertainment package and um, keeping spectators engaged. So once upon a time, when a team were sort of six, seven goals down, it was going to be very hard to catch up. You probably sat there and watched your team yeah. lose for the next two or three quarters. Whereas now. 
I think there was a who was down the Vixens were down quite a number of goals and two point two point two point. Well, we're back in the game, so yeah. I guess it keeps the spectators engaged. Uh, my concern was that well, that's not what's going to happen in international level. So the concern is no, they can't do that in terms of get two points. So if they're behind by eight goals. They better not wait for the two-pointers to come because <laughs> it won't happen. No. But unfortunately, in international netball, though, we've gone to this tall shooter under the post that shoots no more than a metre away from the, the goalpost. Whereas now that they're shooting these two-pointers from much further out, maybe at an international level, when the game's getting close, there will be a goaler that's not afraid to put up a long shot, which yeah. Sherelle McMahon did in the World Tournament in 1999 and Australia won the game. But yeah. these days, goalers don't necessarily put up the long shot anymore because it ruins their stats if they miss, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, So the, the plus side is, hopefully, they'll be prepared to put the long shot up if under pressure in the international match. And we all know that players love to protect their stats, Julie, so no surprises there. Yes. Part of my brand and my package. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's been fantastic having you on, Julie. I've learned a lot from the conversation around how you manage athletes, um, starting up franchises and instilling behaviours that support goals and values. So thanks for being so generous with your time, Julie. Take care. Hopefully this lockdown period in Victoria ends shortly and we can get back out in the court. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Mitch. Thanks, Julie. Hey, everyone in Clubland. As I mentioned last week, I'll be giving people who give the podcast a share on socials or a bit of love a shout out each week. Shane Malia, a passionate Bombers man, really enjoyed the Dean Solomon episode. He tweeted a great insight into what makes a great club, a person-first culture requiring 100% buy-in. Thanks for listening, Shane. Aldo Sedevich has also shared podcast episodes frequently on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening and spreading the word, Aldo. With the T20 World Cup and hopefully our cricket season not too far away, I've got a plethora of cricket coaches lined up in coming weeks. And I'm also working on some leads for other sports as well. If you've got any suggestions of coaches we could talk to, I'm all ears. In the meantime, stay safe, healthy, and connected, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching in Clubland. A shout-out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again, and catch you around in Clubland.